Welcome to Northern Latitudes. I'm Bill Alt. Christian Sinner has been exploring caves in Canada for almost 20 years. We talked about what got him started, the challenges involved, and the lessons learned from going places few people dare. Welcome to Northern Latitudes. Thank you. The first thing I want to talk about, and I want you to tell me about the Rat's Nest Cave, what it meant to you. Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, way to kind of start the story uh, because I had, you know, been interested in the outdoors and as a hiker and doing all those sort of things that a lot of people do. And it wasn't until I went on what was then a guided tour of Rat's Nest Cave near Canmore, Alberta, that uh, was my first real caving experience. And I was so you know, enthralled by what was just such a unique thing, right? To be underground and to be using all these different muscles to crawl and climb and do things like that, that I got interested into it, uh, you know, so much more than, uh, than just a recreational thing. So a few years later, on a trip with the Alberta Speleological Society, uh, me and a few friends had done some trips into the non-tourist part of the cave. And it was on one of those trips that we saw something that was pretty unique to us. So uh, Chaz Young had writ- literally written the book on Rat's Nest Cave. And I, of course, had read it cover to cover. And so in one of the deepest and most furthest parts of the cave from the entrance, we saw something swimming in the water. And I knew that this was not a thing that should be there. Like we just didn't know about it. And so after a series of trips and collections, we're able to find that, uh, that rat's nest cave was home to an aquatic isopod crustacean that is a true troglobite. So this is a cave adapted organism that has no eyes and no pigment. And it's just swimming in the water, doing its thing, how, how it lives and eats in, in the dark. Uh, you know, I don't know because that's not my expertise. But uh, it's from that experience that I truly understood the value that caves can have in terms of our understanding of the world. And I mean, that's part of the, the answer to the why of it. But I mean, for a, for a guy that likes being above the ground, and I've done, you know, I've done the tourist caving thing. And I, it's, it's an amazing you know, it's an amazing experience, but the kind of stuff that you're doing is way beyond that. You're squeezing through tight spaces. Um, I was reading one of your articles. You're talking about um, Castle Guard, I believe, um, where it was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I can do this or not because of the kind of space you were looking at. So is it just that thrill of exploration that drives you on? Yeah, there, there is that because unlike some of the other things that you can do out in the wilderness, uh, you know, take rock climbing or mountaineering or things like that. I mean, there's a physical challenge to it, but with cave exploration, and I'm talking about, you know, places where we are literally going where no human has ever been to before, there's an excitement that comes with that. And for me personally, it doesn't necessarily happen at the time. It usually happens on the drive home, you know, when we're sort of things are calmed down and and you can reflect on the experience and realize that, yeah, no, you know, we were in a place that nobody had ever been to before or, you know, has never seen the light of a headlamp or the footsteps of a person. Um, That's, that's really the thrill. 
I, I find if I have a thrill while underground, that's probably a bad thing. <laughs> it, means, <laughs> it, means that, it means that you're falling or that something's like, you know, going a little bit off the rails. That's not, that's actually not what we want. It's not sort of a sport where you want to be moving quickly. It usually means that you're falling off of something and that's not good. <laughs> and, they, and you talk about that thrill. You talk about the thrill afterwards. I was reading an article about your explanation of rat's nest and that's obviously it made a huge impression on you. Yeah. And that's, it's a, uh, I know it's hard to describe. <laughs> it's really hard to describe the feeling. There have been a few wow moments while underground. You know, you sort of, you you maybe go through a difficult part of the cave and then you see this like vast underground waterfall. And, and you know, it's just amazing to see the spray of the water and to, to feel that you're in a place that has existed and has been developing over perhaps a million years. And that's really the contrast between caves and the underground and the surface world. You look at a place like Western Canada and the landscape that we're seeing has only been around since the recession of the last glaciation. So let's say 8,000 years ago uh, was when, when that happened. Ice sheets retreated and now plants and animals are populating the, the, the world, right? That, that's a very young landscape. Whereas in a cave, you are literally going back in time to, you know, perhaps a million years uh, and seeing something that has existed, uh, you know, without a lot of um, alteration uh, for for much longer time scale. I'm trying to think of things this compares to, and about the only thing that comes to mind readily is being the first guy on the moon. Like, I mean, really, it's like you're going places that nobody's ever been before. That. 99.9% of the population will never get to. And that's really quite remarkable when you think about it. And now I'm going to ask you to, I don't know, I, th I think we'll pick Castle Guard. I was trying to think of which sure. one I'd like to talk about the most, or at least talk about. This is the longest cave in Canada, correct? That's right. And it's 23,000 meters. So 23 kilometers long so far. Yeah, so far is the key thing. And that uh, that's one of the amazing things about cave exploration is that we've known what the tallest mountain in Canada is for 100 years. <laughs> but we won't know what the longest or deepest caves are until we literally chart them all. And we are nowhere close to having done that. And the other thing I find amazing is Castle Guard is under Banff National Park. So Banff National Park, one of the most populated <laughs> national parks, certainly in the Canadian system and maybe in one of the world, and then down 700 meters or so, I think, here's you know this little group of explorers with <laughs> a whole world above them. What does it take to explore a cave like Castlecard? Yeah, Castle Guard is definitely one of the jewels of Canadian geography. It's this unique alpine setting. Uh, to get there, you have to ski or snowshoe uh, over the Saskatchewan Glacier and into an area called Castle Guard Meadows. 
then i mean if you know the and where the entrance is because we don't keep we don't publicly advertise where where cave entrances are and armed with the appropriate permits as well because in the national park this is highly regulated so with the right scientific objectives and permits and and the ability to ski or snowshoe say you know 18 to 20 kilometers and then you have to go caving. So you have to bring all of the equipment that you need to go uh, and sustain yourself underground for, let's say, a week at a time. So that means food. That means all of the winter clothing that you need for the journey, avalanche safety gear, and then all of your caving equipment. So you've got ropes and harnesses and helmets and headlamps and batteries and, you know, of course, the food and anything related to your objectives. Because as you mentioned, like Castle Guard is the longest, but we know there are unexplored parts. So if we're going into those, our duty is to chart those parts and you know take back the information. So we need surveying equipment as well uh, in order to do that. That uh, you know, collecting any samples of bacteria or um, any crustaceans or things like that, we need the equipment for that as well. And plus. You know, if we're going down any new drops that require ropes and hardware, then you need to bring all of that with you. So there's a physical challenge. There's a, a scientific challenge in terms of what your objectives are. And and then the mental challenge as well, as you mentioned. Uh, yeah, tight spaces or being isolated with no contact from the outside world. Those are things that can weigh on your mind. And you left a couple of things off those that list that strike me as kind of important to what you do. There's scuba gear and then there's chainsaws. Okay. <laughs> when I heard, when I heard about electric 18 volt electric batteries for chainsaws, I thought, okay, what does that have to do? The scuba gear I kind of get, but that's another part that's really kind of unique to this whole thing is the scuba, the, the scuba component. Cause sometimes you have to dive just to get in to even start. Correct. Yeah, so Castle Guard, uh, one of the unexplored parts of the cave is underwater. So there's been a few teams of divers that have tried to take a crack at it. And that means that we need to get scuba diving equipment into the cave. So that, <laughs> so yeah, the skiing or snowshoeing 20 kilometers, now you add scuba tanks and dry suits and all <laughs> diving lead, like carrying lead weights across a glacier for scuba diving is one of the most bizarre things I could imagine. But uh, yeah, that's that's part of it. Uh, if you're into that type of caving, then, then that's what you have to put up with. And so over the last few expeditions, one of the objectives has been to um, support uh, you know, scuba divers in trying to get through that part of the cave. But one of the other obstacles is closer to the entrance of the cave, there is a narrow section, which in recent years, we've found can be completely blocked or almost blocked by ice. And so that was the reason for 18 volt battery powered chainsaws, because if you really want to go into the cave, because you've been planning this for a couple years, perhaps, then you need to be ready for that type of eventuality. And that means that we knew this was a problem and that, uh, you know, the scrambling to get the right equipment to sort of chainsaw trough through the ice such that it was just large enough that the team members could, you know, slide through kind of in a Superman pose, imagine stretched out, you know, as flat as you could humanly make yourself 
in order to get through that. And plus all of the equipment needs to come through that too. So your packs, your um, scuba equipment and everything else. And light. I mean, this obviously you're underground, it's dark. So you're, you're carrying all your light with you as well. And that must give it kind of a surreal feel at the best of time, because I mean, your light obviously only penetrates so far. How does that affect you mentally? Like that's when you're down there for, let's say seven days and sometimes longer. Um, how does the, the darkness, it must, it must play a little bit of a factor. Yeah. And I mean, it's going to affect everybody a little bit differently. So I, I couldn't speak to it for everybody. I know some people will be challenged by that. What I find is that when the light, the only light is what you tend to be looking at. That's what your headlamp is pointed towards. So your spatial awareness is really cut down. It's really to what you can light up. And so <laughs> I tend to hit my head on the ceiling a lot <laughs> uh, just because, you know, you're just not as aware of, of the space that you're, you're in. You can't just see it very, very well. So, so that's a challenge. Um, I don't find I'm affected by being underground for, say, seven days, that the light is an issue. What I find is really interesting is when you're sleeping in a cave and when you wake up, in the morning or whatever, because time doesn't really matter. It's dark all the time, right? <laughs> so you, you open your eyes in complete darkness and there's no change. Like your eyes are closed, your eyes are open. And it does, and until you kind of realize and wrap your head around, oh, it's because you know I'm in a cave. It's not because my eyes don't work. Uh, and then you switch on your light for, you have to find it and switch it on and then everything's kind of normal. But there's, there's a brief moment where you open your eyes and it's kind of a interesting thing because a lot of people have never been in, you know, that pitch black darkness where there is literally no natural light, no moon or no stars or anything even to, to provide any, um, light source. And how does, how does the time thing, you just mentioned time, how much have you noticed the change? like in your, you know, just your day-to-day -day rhythm, as it were. So do you notice a change over a short period of time, like seven days? Or? No, I haven't been underground for long enough to, to experience the changes that some researchers and studies have shown that your days end up much longer. <laughs> um, so there is some evidence to that. But uh, when, we've, when we've done our expeditions, we try to keep to a normal schedule. Uh, more or less normal. And, and so you might have long days, but we still try to keep to a regular 24-hour cycle. And you recently won, won an award from the Canadian Geographic Society. Tell me about that and tell me what it's going to mean to your future caving. Sure. Um, so maybe not necessarily an award, but we received a grant, a grant uh, through sorry. the Trebek Initiative. And that's a new partnership between the Royal Canadian Geographical Society and National Geographic. Uh, and it's a truly amazing opportunity for uh, young explorers and emerging explorers to receive funding for different projects that will help make Canada better known to Canadians in the world. And so our project is the Mount Meager Volcanic Complex Glacial Volcanic Cave Project. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that sentence. First off, Mount Meager is Canada's only known active volcano. So that itself is a statement that usually rattles a bunch of people because most people don't know that Canada has volcanoes. And yeah, we do actually. Um, on the west coast of Canada, part of the, the um, 
Cascade Volcanic Arc, the northern part, we have the Garibaldi Volcanic Belt. And uh, as part of that, we actually have a string of volcanoes in Canada. Uh, but Mount Meager is the only one that we know is active. So in 2016, uh, some holes were seen in the glacial ice of the glacier, which is part of the volcanic complex. Those holes in glacial ice were made by volcanic heat and steam and gas, which are emerging from a subglacial fumarole vent. So that's how we can say that the volcano is active. There's still activity happening there. So when a hole forms in a glacier, uh, you could call that a cave. And that's kind of how I get involved. Right. <laughs> So we actually have a team of, of people uh, from around the world who are specializing in what we have named glaciovolcanic caves. These are caves in glacial ice that are formed by volcanic processes like heat and steam emissions. And there's a few volcanoes around the world that have this phenomenon, but this is the only one in Canada. So that's how I got involved. And what our, our, our project is essentially to explore the extent of the cave system. We're going to try to find the volcanic vent and try to see what is the temperature of the fumarole, what is the composition of the gas that's coming out. Because that can give us a little bit more insight into how active this volcano is. And then the other part is, which is truly interesting, there are life forms that can exist in these extreme environments. And so things like chemoautotrophs, these are bacteria that do not rely on photosynthesis or energy from the sun, essentially, to, to survive. There are microorganisms that can, that can essentially feed off of volcanic gas or off of minerals. And these bacteria are very similar to the type of life we might expect to find on other planets. So part of our job in doing this exploration will be to try to take some samples of soil and ice from within the cave environment to see what might be living there. Okay, so you're dealing with volcanic gas, so there must be some special, special equipment involved in being able to do that as well. So maybe not scuba gear, but certainly some sort of air system or? Yeah, that's right. So we've, we've, um, been on site to do reconnaissance and i've been into the cave system one time before a few years ago when we were uh just putting this project together and yeah there's a, a toxic level of hydrogen sulfide gas so we need at the minimum uh air purifying respirator masks where we get sort of into higher concentrations you would need a self-contained breathing apparatus so you, you need a, an actual air supply uh, not just a filter for gas but you actually need uh, uh, proper uh, air um, to to compensate for you know the displacement of oxygen as well going way back you're an officer in the canadian reserves an ultra runner and a cave explorer how much of all of this is based in a love of the outdoors Oh, yeah, a lot of it is a love of the outdoors. I mean, a, mo a lot of my hobbies seem to have gravitated towards that. 
and ultra running is another another part of that which you know i find that was just a way <laughs> you know it, it's funny like i you know i've done backpacking trips and of course you know, all those sort of things and hiking trips and that and <laughs> i found that ultra running it was just such a unique way you could you could experience a three-day backpacking trail hike in a single day and i thought that was a way a really good way to maximize my time i'll, so, I'll take i'll take the three days myself christian but that's okay <laughs> <laughs> but uh and, and and so part of that too it's not just that it's the challenge of it so ultra running is a physical and a mental challenge and so part of it as well is not just the outdoors but it's the experience and the challenge that can come with the outdoors and caving has that as well. So there's the physical challenge of, of being in caves, but the mental challenges, as we've discussed as well, uh, that can come from that. And with caving, it's the knowledge that you can, you can contribute to our knowledge of the world because these are unknown environments. Um, that's the added bonus to things like caving that, that I really enjoy. But the outdoors connects all of it. And, and that yeah. it's that sense of exploration. I mean, obviously that's that's the ribbon running through all of this. And you were saying, like, you know, you're as you the deepest cave in Canada, I know you've been involved there too. And you're and again, it's not it's the deepest, you know, at the point it's at 674 meters so far, but there's still more to go. So there's this exploration element that obviously is hard to find in modern day life. You know, if we go back a couple of hundred years, if you wanted to be an explorer, it was pretty easy. Just pick a direction and go. So there's not much of that left. So this is really, really unique. I mean, what you do is amazingly unique. Uh, I, I find uh, yeah, there, there's, as you said, like uh, there's, you could compare it almost to, to being the first man on the moon, so to speak, right? And in terms of terrestrial exploration, there are not a lot of frontiers left. And I like to tell people, I don't have the money to afford a submarine to go to the bottom of the ocean and do exploration there. And I don't have the money to sort of climb Himalayan mountain peaks uh, and, and sort of be the first to the top of, of some of those. But right here in our own country, I could literally go every weekend if I so desired and could go to a place that nobody has ever been to before because there are still so many unexplored parts of the underground um, all across the world but in Canada uh, especially that we can we can be explorers and add to our knowledge of the world without a whole lot of effort and without a whole lot of, of resources necessary and, and that's why it's it's an amazing frontier. There's not a lot of people doing it. And I think it's because people don't like tight spaces or, you know, there's other challenges. So it's not for everybody. But for the ones who do take it up, there's a subset of them that just truly get totally enveloped in that in that environment. And it really becomes, uh, you know, a really part a part of their existence. And this 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 undiscovered country, like it was. Um, it wasn't that long ago, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a, a fairly large cave that was discovered out in the BC area that suddenly everybody's gone, oh, this thing is huge. Where did it come from? Obviously, it's been there forever, but we have a whole country that's unexplored in a lot of different ways. And you mentioned Adam and, you know, Adam does this, you know, his thing where he's, you know, out in the middle of nowhere forever. 
you know, maybe it has been seen before, maybe it hasn't. But the reality is when Adam's out there, he's 600 kilometers away from anybody. In your case, you're only 700 meters away from anybody, but you're 700 meters underground. A lot of Canadians don't understand how great this country is just to get out and explore it. What's the one thing left? Or there's probably more than one, but whether there's one thing you would really like to see or do in your caving life, what would it be? Yeah, that's a good question. We have, I mean, we have so many interesting projects. Uh, and you mentioned that things are still being discovered, right? So the deepest cave in Canada is Bizarro Anima, as you mentioned. Um, so we actually, just in October, did a, another expedition there. So a few months ago, we were back with a big team. And now it is 683 meters deep. So uh, every year you know, we, we sort of can put on an expedition and we push maybe just a little bit further into the mountain. And so that's one, that's just one project. We have another one called Raspberry Rising, where we have a cave um, in the Rogers Pass area. It's the longest marble cave in Canada. So most caves in Can Canada are in limestone. This one's in formed in marble. And it's been, it's such been such a unique project that involves uh, scuba diving and climbing underground and, you know, unique uh, scientific discovery and beautiful underground formations. So both of these caves, essentially the modern exploration timeline started under 10 years ago. There's so much left to discover, even in the projects that we're, we're still working on, that I don't necessarily need to look to something new. I can look to try to finish some of the projects that we're already working on. I, I really want to get back into Raspberry Rising. It's certainly one of my most favorite caves uh, in the world and one that I've dedicated quite a lot of my exploration time into that project. It's over five kilometers long, that cave uh, so far, five and a half kilometers long. And uh, you know it promises a lot more discovery. In Bizarro Anima, we recently uh, pushed the cave not only to be deeper, but almost a kilometer longer in terms of the passages that we found. And that's, again, just as recently as a few months ago. Here's the thing. We found a kilometer more of passages. We probably found about 30 unexplored leads to add to our list. So yeah, you found a kilometer of passage, but there's also, well, what about this way? What about this way? What about this way? There's tons of things that we just physically had no time or equipment to get to. That cave will be explored for decades and we probably will still not see the end of it. So yeah, <laughs> in terms of bucket list things, I would say it would be nice to get to the end of some of these. <laughs> uh, <laughs> never ending. Castle Guard, the longest cave in Canada, 50 years of exploration and we're still not to the end of that. So, yeah, I, I guess the, the way to put it is that we, we have a lot more to discover right here in our own backyard. So I'm going to ask you to describe to me, because I read this and I, I thought it was amazing, the entrance to Raspberry Rising. And this is a cave that I believe was just touched upon in like the late 60s, maybe. And most of the exploration, like you said, has happened fairly recently. But Tell me how you get into Raspberry Rising, because I think for anybody who's not a caver, this is absolutely stunning. Yeah, and that's a, so 
<laughs> as I said, the it, one of the most bizarre things I think you could imagine is like carrying scuba equipment up a mountain. And this is exactly what it is. For for Castle Guard, uh, when there's diving projects, we have to do that. For Raspberry, it's a requirement every time. So this is a, a cave system that is gushing water. It is uh, uh, essentially a resurgence. So all of the melt water from a distant glacier is going through the earth and it spits out of the side of the mountain at this place called Raspberry Rising. And so we can only go in winter because that's when the water flow is lower and safer. And so essentially that means you have to travel uh, again in skis or snowshoes. You're carrying scuba equipment partway up a mountain. And plus again, all of your caving equipment, all of your ropes, your hardware, your safety equipment, everything has to come with you. And then you get to a cave entrance where uh, you can go in without any special equipment to short ways. But then the entire passage is flooded with water. And from there on, you have to don scuba equipment. And so the water is about two degrees Celsius. And it's a short dive. But the restriction is that uh, the deepest part of the dive, there's a 40 centimeter slot you have to fit through underwater. And all of your equipment has to come through that too. So it's not just you, it's, uh, you know, all of this equipment you need for exploration. And so after this short dive, you can surface back into the air and then you can take your scuba tank off. But the other obstacles from there on in, uh, like it doesn't get any better. <laughs> it, uh, uh, the, the, the cave, even though the majority of it is filled with air, it's a raging river throughout many parts of the cave. And so you have to deal with climbing through up, up through waterfalls or, um, you know, bridging through these Canyon like passages with a raging river, you know, or you're wading through, you're wading through the water to try to make any forward progress. And so, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of challenges. It's a multi-sport thing, uh, you know, snowshoe, winter, caving, scuba, climbing, uh, you know, I don't know what to call that sport, but whatever it is, that's what we do in order to explore. Now, you mentioned a little bit earlier, you said a lot of these cave entrances, you keep them secret, you need special, special permits and stuff to dive in them. You work with Alberta BC Cave Rescue. I mean, obviously, you got involved with that because of your caving. How busy are you guys as rescuers? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, thankfully, not super yeah. busy. And it's partly because there aren't a lot of people doing uh, cave exploration. Uh, but when something happens, it tends to be something that needs a lot of resources. Right. And so cave rescue is really something that the community of cavers has trained for and is prepared to help not only our own community, but members of the public. Because it's such a specialized environment, uh, things like fire departments or other rescue agencies don't train for this. So we're really the only group that specifically trains for that in Western Canada. And luckily, uh, as I said, it's not something that happens frequently, but imagine a rescue on the side of a mountain, uh, you know, a lot of times you might be accessed by a helicopter, a small team of people might be able to package you in a stretcher and move you away. If you're hundreds of meters underground, okay, the helicopter isn't coming for you. 
uh, as I said, GPS and cell phones and radios, for the most part, don't work. So before you can get to where a helicopter could get to you, you need to get to the cave entrance. And so that can involve moving a stretcher through some pretty complicated underground terrain and up some of those drops that maybe you had to rappel down. So now we've got to move a person in a stretcher back up of those. So we need you know, technical rope rescue um, equipment and knowledge and a lot of people to move a stretcher underground. And so you look at some of the historic large cave rescues around the world, and it's not uncommon to see that hundreds of people were, were needed. And so the entire caving community would have to sort of mobilize in a big rescue and, and be part of that. And so, yeah, that's my job as a provincial coordinator is to essentially to lead and execute those if they happen. So yeah, you don't. You, it, it, we keep cave entrances uh, secret partly for conservation and partly because, you know, we recommend that people get involved with a caving group, of which there are a number of them around the country: the Alberta Speleological Society, uh, BC Speleological Federation, um, the Quebec Speleological Society. There's many. There's many of them around, and sort of go with people who are knowledgeable who can tell you about the right equipment to bring and to sort of coach you along. Those are, that's the best way to get involved and, and to get involved safely so that you're not um, going to be a risk uh, to yourselves or, or have to cause a, such a big uh, rescue call out. What's the one thing you've learned from caving that you think is a life lesson? What do you think you've learned that you stick with you forever? I would say... The thing I've learned is that you you don't need to you don't need to change the world by you know winning the Nobel Prize or you know having some amazing groundbreaking discovery to make a difference. And it's these small things, whether it's like the discovery of a microorganism in a cave. I mean that's 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 a cool thing, and it's it's a little. It's just a little thing that helps advance our knowledge of the world. And so it's whether it's doing something like that or whether it's doing things in your community to help others, whether it's as a volunteer or to dedicate yourself to other causes that help improve our world. Those are within the capability of every person. So you don't need to go into caves. You don't need to, to you know, make groundbreaking medical discoveries or anything to change the world. You just need to do things a little bit here and a little bit there to make our world a better place. And that's something we can all do. And so I've tried to do that where I can, whether it's in caves or, or on the surface with the uh, different things that I do. And I think that's something that anyone can. Nicely said, Christian. Thanks for joining us today. Great. Thanks for having me. That's it for episode nine. Thanks to producer Sarah Simpson and social media director Alina Simpson for their help this week. Our theme music and sound logo are by Titan Sound, John Sanfilippo. Make sure to tell a friend about the podcast and send them over to the podcast page at northernlatitudes.ca. I'm Bill Alt. Find your way to Northern Latitudes.